I'd like to start out this episode with a quote. This is Merle Haggard talking about George Jones. His voice was like a Stradivarius violin, one of the greatest instruments ever made. He could interpret any given set of words better than anybody I've ever heard. You'd have to go back to Hank Williams and Ernest Tubb to compare, and he may have outdone them both. Someone asked me recently, how did he do it? George Jones went to the grave with that secret. I get mad at him over the years because of his self-damage, but everything I said to him was out of love. Imagine you're George Jones, and every night you're expected to sing as good as you did on a song like She Thinks I Still Care. He was a shy country boy from East Texas, walking around with that on his shoulders. He knew people expected him to be the greatest country singer that ever lived. He was the Babe Ruth of country music, and people expected a home run every time. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Lou Bradley. Lou is a legendary recording engineer. He was the head engineer at the Quonset Hut, where he recorded some of the greatest songs in country music history. You can find out everything you need to know about Lou at musicianshalloffame.com. If you missed the last episode, I strongly recommend you going back and listening to Lou talk about whatever stories he could remember about behind closed doors. But Lou invited me over to the Quonset hut. He arranged to where we could get in there, and we sat in the control room. So when you hear us talking, we're sitting there where he made these wonderful records, and Lou was the guy turning knobs and putting everything to tape on some of the greatest songs in the history of country music. I asked Lou if he could tell me everything that he could remember about He Stopped Loving Her Today. And Lou has a pretty great memory. He threw in a whole lot of stories about that record and about George Jones in particular. And I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Here's Lou Bradley. I was a George Jones fan. I saw him when he was on Stardate in my hometown. I'm from Pensacola, Florida. But George was probably one of the best singers. Yeah, I got to record two of the best male singers ever. I did Haggard a lot and I did Jones a lot. People ask me which one's best. And I say, well, most days it's almost a tie and then some days one would be a step ahead of the other. <laughs> That's the best way I can describe it because they were both so good. But Jones, Jones had this soul about him. He didn't have this ego you had to stroke. He'd sit and talk to you or, you know, he, he was just George. Whatever you want to talk about, you know, he was just old George. 
when I guess if you sing that good, you don't have to prove a dead gum thing to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we did two sessions one day, a two and a six, and everybody went to eat supper between the two, except me and George. And I noticed George wasn't going to go eat, so I, I, I'd, I'd sit there and talk to him. You know, so we went and got a cup of coffee, and it was a table right outside this door. And we sit there talking about this and that, and we got talking about songs. And I said, George, what do you look for in a song you're going to record? He said, Lou, plain and simple. It's got to make fire come out of my ass. And I say, how's that, George? He said, well, I played a show in Oklahoma City, and a guy there had a publishing company and wanted to play me some songs. So we went and got a bite to eat after the show. And for two and a half hours in his office, he played me songs, no fire. <laughs> he said, George, I played you everything I've got. I've got one more song here. I don't think it's for you, but you might as well hear everything. George said, five words came out and fire left 20 feet out of my ass. He said, I feel tears of races on. I said, George, the world heated up when they heard your record. He was a good guy. Uh, Bobby Braddock and Curly Putnam, who just died. Curly Putnam also wrote uh, uh, Green Green Grass at Home. Yep, and uh, D-I-B-O-R-C-E. And they, they, they were a great writing team. And, and Braddock's great by itself. But. And they just walked up to Billy Sherrill with the song. Well, they uh, pitched it to him. They, always, they had no problem pitching songs to Sherrill. Probably somebody at Tree brought them to him. Song plugger at Tree would say, hey, here's a new Braddock Putnam song. Gen- generally what would happen uh, – you know, the song pluggers would figure out who's going to record. You know, that's part of their job. So they're pitching songs to the producer or the artist, too, for them. You know, Billy Sherrill would always listen to a Bobby Braddock and Curly Putnam song. Bobby Braddock has said that it took forever to get it re- to record it. Well, no, from the time we recorded the first note, it was no more than two or three months the record was out. Okay, well, he he's, I think, kind of confusing the fact of when they they initially wrote the song, pitched it to Cheryl, and he kept telling them it ain't right yet, it ain't right yet. Well, they said, what's what's got to happen? He said, well, she comes to see him in the last verse, one more time, and boy, that they knew where to go with it then. So Cheryl, that's what I loved about Cheryl. He he cut through all the BS and the gun smoke and everything to what was important, what mattered. If somebody said, you need uh, to get together and negotiate and team to go negotiate peace in the Middle East, I said, the president once said, get him a team, I'd get uh, Bob Johnston, Billy Sherrill, and Merle Haggard. Of course, they're all dead now, but, and and he said, why would you do that? And I said, well, Bob Johnston, when I first came to work for Columbia, Flat and Scruggs, it just broke up. Wouldn't even talk to each other. And I went up in a control room to get something. I look out in the studio and Bob's standing in the middle of the room and Earl's on a stool on this side of that big room. And Lester's on a stool over here. Lester talked to Bob. Bob talked to Earl. Earl talked to Bob. He negotiated him back in the studio one more time <laughs> to do an, an album. I said, now they wouldn't even talk to each other. They got him back in the studio. That's negotiating. Billy Sherrill for the way he worked with his artists. And all the great producers would do that. If he had a song he felt like was a hit and they didn't particularly like it, but they, he said, tell you what, we'll cut that song you want to cut. I don't particularly like it if you'll cut this. You know, Owen told me he did that too a lot with, with artists. But Billy was great working with the players. I've seen producers 
so adamant about what they were going for. In other words, they had it in their mind exactly how the record's going to be. There's nothing wrong with that. But I, I do know this. I've seen they'd play the demo and they'd work something up, and boy, it was good. I mean, when you make as many records as have, you know when something is good. And the producer was so adamant about what he wanted, it wasn't that. It's like putting handcuffs on the band. It'd be, the session be stiff from then on, you know. But Cheryl had a great way of working with the players. He'd let them have their head, you know, go for it. And sometimes they'd go in a direction he hadn't thought of. And I know that. And he'd, he'd, he'd go with it. But here's where, where his negotiating skills would come in. He would not get them all bowed up in the back and stiff. If they went the wrong way, he'd ease out in the studio and sit down at the piano and say, boys, what if we did this? And they all knew that they had gone the wrong way without having their hand slapped, see? And, and they'd all get on board, and it'd be good. And, and the other negotiator would be Merle Haggard, because several times I've done a background overdub doing voices, and it'd be a current wife and two ex-wives. Now, anybody who can pull that off can negotiate <laughs> anything, and nobody got killed. <laughs> He always had fought that devil in the bottle, you know, drinking. That, that time, that period where he got into the cocaine, you know, singers don't need to be near that at all. I can help some singer by saying that, don't get, get into that stuff. You know, it, it tears up your throat. Nancy came into his life, his wife. They married. He got dried out, straightened out, and we come in here and record. And we started, and I said, Billy, it's good to have him back. He was singing good. He said, it's 90%, but I'll take it. Because he stopped <laughs> loving her today. And, uh, Did George Jones not like he stopped loving her today? I don't think that's true. I think he thought it was too sad to be a hit. Not, he didn't like it. He, it's obvious it's a good song. But he, he, he didn't think that radio would play it when he first heard it. But boy, he loved it later. <laughs> well, when he started singing it, I'd read that he was singing Help Me Make It Through the Night, the melody to that. He had a hard time well, with the melody. Well, he had to learn the melody, you know. That's one thing I loved about Billy. Like, if we did a song and the artist didn't know the melody, but we might go ahead and record it. But come into overdub the melody, Cheryl wouldn't let him stand there and uh, sing it and sing it and sing it. He'd take him to the piano and teach him the melody. And then, then they'd get, they'd know the melody. See that, that's why singers don't sing on key. They don't know the melody. A lot of them, it, they're, they're trying to figure out they're thinking about what, where do I go next? Instead of hitting, I know where I'm going to hit the note. If they knew the melody, they'd put pro tools out of business. <laughs> but, uh, I, th I think that was it. He just had to learn the melody. Would George Jones sing with headphones on? Yeah. Would most people in here do that? Yeah. When it was cutting live, they didn't necessarily. They had them if they wanted to use them, but they're they're all right there. They can hear. A lot of the players wouldn't wear it. Either. You know, he had uh, Bill Ball was the lead player. Maybe uh, Pete Drake played on that. Pig, Jerry Kerrigan's on the drums, and uh, Henry Strzelecki, I believe, played bass on that. Tommy also played bass guitar, and. I'd have to go look. Rhythm guitars were maybe Sanford and Jimmy Capps. Or, you know, it was a core of those guitar players that 
you know, you might on a two, ten. If you did two sessions, say with George Jones, you might have uh, two of them on a ten o'clock and another two on, you know, depending on their availability. But one t- one day in here at ten o'clock, I did uh, George Jones at ten o'clock, Tammy Wynette at two. These are sessions with players. Johnny Paycheck at six, and then Haggard at ten till three in the morning. He went. He ran over. And then I came back at 10 o'clock the next morning, did John Anderson. <laughs> I said, and, and the union complained and the company, they didn't want the union upset. We had to be belong to this union to work for Columbia. So they had a big whoop to do about it. I said, listen, y'all can find me or fire me or whatever you're going to do, but I, I don't get to record that many of the great singers in a row <laughs> like that. So finally I was going to do it. Well, I turned around too quick because of the three o'clock. I should have waited. That's a Mount Rushmore of great <laughs> yeah, coaches. That's singers. all the great singers right there. Hey, here's the interesting Jones story. My, one of my heroes was uh, Selby Coffin. I'll tell you this whole story. Selby Coffin was the engineer at, at uh, in Springfield. Did early Porter Wagner and some Jim Reeves and Browns and different ones over there. Well, RCA hired him. For some reason, it didn't take. But Owen hired him. He was a musical guy, Selby was. He and Owen made history. They cut so many great records. Well, then he was working for Columbia when I came here. Well, just before I came to work here, in that year before, he'd had about two or three heart attacks. Well, another producer, he could still mix. Producers didn't want to use him because they didn't want to push him into another heart attack. When you're sitting in the mixer's chair, there's a little pressure on you. They, so they didn't want to put that pressure on Selby. They all loved him, you know. Well, he was just doing backup, operating the tape machines. So when I go to work, Tom Sparkman was engineer and supervisor. And when I came to work, so I got settled in. Started. He said he came to me one day and said, would it bother you if I make Selby your backup engineer? I said, no, not at all. Because I'd been friends with Selby for a long time. I mean, a hero. You know. And I asked you why he asked me that question. He said, well, some of the old hands around here are a little intimidated by the old master looking over their shoulders. <laughs> I didn't tell Tom, but I was going to pick his mind. And he was a great splicer. But Selby, he was just a, a great engineer. He did a lot of the Patsy Klein, Brenda Lee. and He did a lot of the early Jones stuff. And he told me one time, he said, we did a George Jones album, 12 sides, copies made, masters pulled, everybody out the door in two and a half hours. Think about that. 12, and it, it was, George did two Hank Williams albums. One was on Mercury, first one, then one was on uh, Music Horror United Artists one. He was on those labels. And Selby said, when we did that album, they said, what key and who's going to fill where? One take. Everybody knew the songs. George knew the songs. Boom, one take and the next song. And he said, that we rolled through that album. It was out the door in two and a half hours, and it was great. That, now, that, that's, that's your singer right there in the in player. Another interesting satellite to that record. We, uh, bridge part there. Uh, Billy said, Millie, I want you to do that high obligata part, Millie Kirkham in the voices. 
and Millie said, Billy, you don't want a high part. You want a lower part, contralto part. So she did. She did it lower, if you listen to it. That's not that real high soprano she was so famous for. It was a lower part. And when we heard it, we all knew that was that was right, you know, because he's going to be talking. That's where he talked. Ron Snake Reynolds did the string overdubs and some Jones overdubs upstairs. Then Billy brought it back down here for me to mix it. So we get to working, getting the mix up, and he said, you know, I don't know whether I want that Millie part or not, so let's mix it both ways, with it and without it, and I'll decide. We'll master it both ways, you know, make a reference. I'll, I'll decide off the disc. So we did. Well, there was a, Jenny Smith was a the new engineering clerk down in the, the engineering office, and it was her job, you know, to keep track of all the paperwork and everything on the sessions and expedite to the pressing plant, the Columbia stuff. There was a, another gal worked down there that was the bookkeeper, but she did the outside business. But Jenny did the in-house Columbia epic stuff. As I said, we, Billy had both of we mastered it both ways with, with million without. So she called me aside, said, I believe I've lost the tape. Said, you have said, uh, what tapes? I think I've lost the George Jones tape. He said, Millie on the bridge. Well, Billy's instruction was ship the one with Millie on the bridge. Well, he she thought that was the title. <laughs> and she, <laughs> she spent a half a day looking for Millie on the bridge. And so I finally introduced them, and they laughed at each other for years after that. It's Millie on the bridge. I'm going to read something that I got out of his book. Maybe you can tell me if this is true. Well, I may or may not know. <laughs> um George Jones in his book, this is a quote from, from George. He says, I looked Billy square in the eye and said, nobody will buy that morbid son of a bitch. Then I walked out the studio door. Is there well, any truth to that? I, I, I wasn't privy to that conversation, but I do know that George, as I said, he didn't dislike the song. He just thought it was too sad for radio to play. That's, that's what, you know, and, uh, Billy Sherrill told me one time, he said, when I took the job at Columbia, he said, it wasn't written anywhere in stone or on paper, three uh, rules. One, you didn't cut a song that was over three minutes long. You didn't cut a song that was a waltz. And you didn't cut a song that put the woman down. He said, I kind of rocked along abiding by the rule. And that was for airplay. They didn't think radio would play a waltz or a song that put women down, or a long song. They should have learned from El Paso that <laughs> they would play it if it's good enough. Well, anyway, uh, uh, he said my first big hit broke all three of them, almost persuaded. It was a waltz, and it was longer than three minutes, and he put the woman down. He said, I quit paying attention to the rules. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put George back on top. Oh, Lord, that uh, people say, I, you know, I debate about it's the greatest record of all time, but boy, it's a great George Jones record. I know that, you know, because when he starts that thing off, and I believe because I mixed it, it seemed like we might have went with the original vocal there. On the floor. Yeah. But he, he was so good, man. He, yeah, and a lot, here's a little sidelight on Jones. And other singers like him, like Haggard and Lefty, a lot of singers miss the point. 
people, I've seen them actually come in here before a session or during a session to George, I got this song and then sit the piano with a guitar or, or play him a demo. And they do, they overdo the tricks. You understand what I mean by the tricks? The little, little vocal figures they do. You listen to Haggard, you listen to Jones particularly. That's like a trump card to them. These people would start from the very first note doing tricks. They play it where it means something, on the phrase where it means something, you see. It would actually turn Jones off. I've, I've seen this, a songwriter, it was a decent song, but the way that guy was singing it turned him off, you see. If he'd have just sung it straight, George knows how he's going to sing it. It doesn't need the gymnastics. Yeah, it doesn't need all that gymnastics. So those great singers are going to put it in the microphone. I, I, Patty Page, I, I did several albums with her in here, and she was so good. You see them old Grizzle Studio guys get up on the front of their chairs because she's going to put it in the microphone. You got to get it. They go get it. Hey, you want another? You want a Hagger Jones story? Jones had his TV show for TNN. Remember that? And so he they were in town. Hagger was going to be on it, so I went out there. I recorded Haggard for about the last 20 years. It was a lot. You know, I'd go out to California and work for him out there. But, and so I went out to the T, TNN taping, you know. And they're sitting on the couch talking, you know, talking about the first time they met. And Don Markham, his horn player, Bakersfield guy, and I said, reckon that's how it is, Don? <laughs> and he said, I can tell you exactly how it is. Jones was booked into a club out there. There was a circuit of clubs in Bakersfield. It was called the, the Blackboard. They said Jones was booked into the blackboard and uh, showed up too drunk to go on. It was a small club, and, and Haggard had done his prison time and was fronting the house band. He was working day jobs and fronting the house band. Well, they said Jones showed up too drunk to go on. And the manager had him in his office trying to sober him up, and the crowd's starting to get restless. And the manager's office is straight across the stage from where the bandstand is. Crowd's starting to get restless. The manager says, Hag, you better get up there and sing. And Don was playing in the house band. Hag was fronting. He said Hag started singing. This before anybody knew who he was. And so he's, and he's about halfway through his third song. And the door to the manager's office didn't just open. It slammed open and a stone-cold sober Jones stepped out to see who was eating at lunch. That's how good Haggard sang. He sobered up Jones. <laughs> I can tell you a story. On the day of George Jones's funeral, I was that night. I was sitting at a bar on Music Row. About eighty or ninety people in there, nice and loud. People laughing, drinking, making a lot of noise. And, and somebody went over to the jukebox and started playing. He stopped loving her today. Yeah. And it happened really slow, like a wave over probably fifteen or twenty seconds. But the place went completely silent. And everyone just sat there quietly. Mm. The whole thing played, and then it was when it was over, everybody remained silent for a couple more minutes. It was really, really powerful. Yeah, they, uh, you know, that record. It just—I uh, guess it'll be played forever. Next time you listen to it, listen to the band. They're talking about well, George didn't like the song or whatever. I'm telling you, he sang good that day because you listened to Phil Balls and Pete and all the, the players. They, they're they into it. And uh, he was a good guy, man. He didn't have his ego. 
he made the song his. I really appreciate you taking the time to tell me yeah. some stories. And, and I like to tell people these old stories, you know. I can't imagine sitting in this chair and hearing George Jones' voice. I tell people okay. I had a really good job. Merle Haggard, George Jones paid me to listen to him sing. <laughs> <laughs> Can you beat that job? <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Lou for being so generous with his stories and his time. You can find out everything you need to know about Lou at MusiciansHallOfFame.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.